Uh, this is, we're going to cover today Genesis 6, verse 10 through 8, verse 22. And uh, we're picking up where we left off last time. Last time was the introduction to the story of Noah and the flood. And uh, just re- brief recap, it's, as, as Adam reminded us all that Noah is not, the story of Noah and the flood is not a kid's story. This is a story about judgment sexual immorality, and massive death and destruction. Uh, it's not a, not a cute little kid story. There, and there's some <clears throat> great lessons contained in there for us. There are, the second thing we hit last time, there are many ancient accounts about a great flood, and the one by Moses is the accurate and correct one of them all. Uh, a passage in this story which is perplexing to a lot of people uh, the question about, some translations refer to it as the Nephilim, the giants, the race of giants that came about when it says the sons of daughters, uh, sons of God uh, came into the daughters of men and a, a race of giants resulted. And uh, we talked about how almost all early Christian commentators as well as Jews in the book of Enoch at the time uh, understood this as being that the angels and human women, the angels came down and had relations with human women, and there was a another point of view which became more popular later on that the sons of God refers to the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men was the descendants of Cain. So uh, we just talked about that quite a bit in the last class. And the wickedness of mankind became so bad that God decided to wipe people from the face of the earth. <clears throat> and then there are the two important words that appear in the story of, of uh, Noah. One is it says he was a righteous man who was pleasing to God. So this is, I believe this is the first person in scriptures who's referred to as being righteous in the, in the Greek Old Testament that was used in the early church. Same word that's it's used in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament about being righteous. And then it says that he, was, he found favor or grace from God. So I believe this is the first reference to grace also. The same word, it's a very significant word in the New Testament. Uh, so let's pick up from there. I want, to, I want to read from Genesis chapter 6 verse 10 to 7 verse 5. <clears throat> I'm going to be reading from the... Uh, a Bible a translation is based on the Septuagint, so it may be slightly different than the one you're reading, but not that much. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 10. So Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God and filled with unrighteousness. Thus the Lord God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all fresh flesh corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with unrighteousness through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of square timber. You shall make the ark in compartments and cover it inside and out with pitch, and thus you shall make the ark, 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in breadth, 30 cubits in height. Now when you assemble the ark, you shall gradually finish it up to a cubit at the top and set the door in its side. You shall make the ark with the lower, second, and third stories. And behold, I'm bringing a flood of water on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. 
Whatever is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. From every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Two of every kind they will enter into the ark with you, male and female, to keep them alive. You shall also take for yourself all kinds of food to eat, and you shall gather it both for yourself and for them. Thus Noah did according to all the Lord his God commanded them. And continuing in, in chapter 7, verse 5 verses, Then the Lord God said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your family, because I have seen you righteous before me in this generation. You all shall, shall bring in with you into the ark the clean cattle by sevens, male and female, and the unclean cattle by twos, male and female, and the clean birds of heaven by twos, uh, male and female, to keep the seed alive on the face of the earth. After seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the earth every living thing I made. So Noah did all the Lord God commanded him. Um, so, God's upset with mankind for filling the earth with wickedness. He decides to wipe out the human race as well as the animals and basically start over again. And here it talks about the, the construction of the ark. Now, uh, uh, Chris Treganos here and I are both in the construction business from different angles. Chris is a contractor and I work as an engineer in design. So this part is a part that we're familiar with because basically he's giving the specifications for building the ark. Very clear. It's written instructions for how, how you're supposed to build this thing. So as an engineer, I'll write specs, and contractors have to follow the specs in doing this. So God, God gave the specs, and Noah, Noah had to follow it. And it says that uh, in, in the Septuagint version, it said he made it from four-sided lumber, basically finished, finished lumber. This is not from logs. Okay, that's right. 4S, four-sided lumber. Uh, and the King James Version, I think it says gopher wood there. It says, uh, or, or cypress, some translations. Uh, it's coated with uh, pitch, it says. And in the Septuagint, the word that's used there is the same word that we get asphalt out of. So this was out of uh, sometimes called asphalt or bitumen. It's a naturally occurring petroleum type product. It's gooey and black. And people use, they still use it today for waterproofing on most people's shingles are made out of, of, uh, of the same type of material. So it's, uh, it's basically says you're going to coat it inside and outside. So he also says you're going, to, you're going to make the ark three stories, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. A cubit is basically the distance from elbow to the, to the tip of your fingers, uh, roughly. Uh, we think 18 inches, about a foot and a half, or a half a meter if you think metric. And it would the, the ark, as described here, would have the capacity of approximately 450 standard semi-tractor trailer trucks. So this is have a huge volume. This was a big... You think about this, this is 450 feet long. 
or uh, a football field is 300 feet long. So this is this is enormous. This is an enormous, enormous structure, an enormous boat. The animals were brought on board, uh, seven of the clean and two of the unclean kind, plus there's food for everybody, and then Noah and his family. Of course, there are eight, Noah, his three sons, and, and all their wives, eight people total. Noah gives very specific instructions. And it says in Genesis 7-5, Noah did all the Lord commanded him. It says the same thing in Genesis 6-22. Noah, God gave very specific, detailed instructions, and Noah did exactly what God said. And God tells him the dimensions of the boat. He tells him the materials of construction. He tells him the coating that's going to go outside and inside. He gives him the internal features, three floors and then compartments within, within the floors for the animals, and even locations regarding a door. So um, if you imagine yourself, this is, this is a, an ark that took, uh, I would assume, 100 years to prepare because he's told at the age of 500 to do this, and at the age of 600 the, the flood begins. So then this is a massive, massive structure. Uh, and I don't think it had, it's, it never rained like this on the earth before, so he's building this on dry land, uh, taking decades and decades of time to put this thing together. And if I was in his position, to be honest, I'd be tempted to take some shortcuts because this is a very difficult structure to build. Now, First question is, why do we have to make it this big? Why does it have to be gigantic like this? Couldn't we make it a little bit smaller and shave a few years off of, of my life constructing this? And the answer is obvious. No, it needs to carry all the animals and all the food for the animals. And the wives and the And the wives and the sons. That's right. Uh, now... The dimensions of the ark, God just doesn't say the volume, but he says the dimensions of the ark, where you're making it six times as long as it is wide. Think, well, if you made it more like a box, a square, or a circle, you could build it a lot faster and use a lot less lumber to, to provide the same amount of volume. But this had to be a seaworthy boat. And those are the dimensions that would correspond to, basically, the proportions that would correspond to a, a super tanker or an ocean-going vessel today. So there's a reason for it. It had to be seaworthy. It had to be buoyant and stable in the water and unlikely to capsize. So that's why the ratio of dimensions is given by God. The other thing is, why do you need to have three decks and compartments? Well... I was thinking about this, this is hypothetically, I was thinking if it's going to be pretty scary with a major storm and a lot of animals, and just, you know, hundreds and thousands of animals on the boat. And what do animals do when they get, they, get, they get upset, they get excited? Well, they start to move around, they stampede. If all the animals went to the same side of the boat at the same time, what's going to happen? The boat's going to capsize. <laughs> right. So God says you're going to create compartments inside the boat and you're going to have three levels here. So I'm thinking he did it that way for structural stability of the boat, 
if you reinforce it against the forces of the, the water and the storm, and also so that it wouldn't so the animals wouldn't move around and capsize the boat. So there's reasons behind all of this. Now, God throughout the scriptures sometimes gives very, very specific instructions. And we don't always know the reason for the instructions that God has given. But God has his reasons. And Noah didn't take any shortcuts. Now, some of the things having to do with the ark had to do with something that would happen 100 years later when the flood began. Some of the things maybe had to do with things that are thousands of years later that are foreshadowing for us. We'll talk about that later. But it wasn't, this is not the easy way to, to build a boat. Uh, very specific commands from God, and Noah believed that God was wise and knew what he was doing, so he just simply did exactly what God told him. He followed all the specifications, and as a result of doing that, he ended up saving himself, his family, and really the entire human race. Is God still looking for this kind of an attitude of someone who's going to do everything exactly as he said, like Noah did in following all the specifications. Jesus uses a story of another flood to make an important point connected with that. Near the close of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus after laying out a number of very specific commands that are part of the part of the kingdom of God, and it went went beyond what Moses taught. He says in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against the house, and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I'll give you another example. The Great Commission. Now, in in. Here in the Great Commission in the past, the emphasis was always on the part of go make disciples and of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the rest of the Great Commission is, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the rest of the Great Commission says it's just as important teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The Great Commission is not just to make disciples, but to teach them to obey everything Jesus taught. John 15, verse 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Jesus tells the religious hypocrites in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. 
But Jesus here recognizes that some commands of God are more important, are weightier than others. Not all commands of God are the same. He blasts the Pharisees for neglected the most important commands of God, but he's saying, but you also needed to take care of the smaller commands as well. The Christian world, as I look at it in, in, in America, the biggest dividing point in the Christian world is the people who really believe we have to obey the teachings of Jesus on the one hand, and the people who think, all we have to do is believe in Jesus, and obedience is nice, but is not absolutely essential. Now, within the first group, the second group is hopeless. Within the first group, the people who believe that at least we have to obey the teachings of Jesus. Now, hopeless, I mean, we need to help them out, but they don't even have a foundation to start off with. You have to start with, look, we have to obey the teachings of Jesus, clearly. That's what he says right in, in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, or, or you're going to be destroyed in the end. So we, we have to teach, the, teach, help them to understand that. But among those who believe, at least, yes, we do have to obey the commands of Jesus, there is a temptation to focus on certain commands and elevate them and completely ignore other commands. I think the challenge of for all of us who really believe that we have to obey the teachings of Jesus, is to embrace all of them and not leave any of them out, realizing some are, some are more important than others, but we really need to strive all of them. We can't specialize in a few and neglect or ignore the other ones, which honestly is what most, most uh, king, uh, Christians who are serious about the kingdom have a tendency to do. So that includes New Testament teachings on discipleship, conversion, evangelism, sexual purity, homosexuality, confessing our sins to each other, helping those in need in evangelism. But it also includes teachings of Jesus on divorce and remarriage, holiness, separation from the world, materialism, uh, the role of women in the church and the family, uh, modesty, head covering, forgiveness, and Christian unity, which Jesus really, really uh, puts tremendous emphasis on. So we can't fool ourselves into saying, well, we're following the most important commandments and the other ones aren't important. We need to follow all the commands of Jesus and contained in the New Testament. 1 John 2, verse 3 and 4 says, Now by this we know we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 5, 3 said, For this is love of God that we keep his commandments. In the New Testament, in New Testament letters, it just doesn't say that obeying the commands of Jesus are a good idea and a nice thing to do out of the <coughs> overflow of gratitude of our heart. It says clearly that our salvation depends on it. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. This ties it right back to Jesus himself. It says that Jesus himself learned obedience from what he suffered. And after being, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
Jesus was obedient to the Father and was perfected through obedience through the, the, the tough, tough things. And he will give salvation to all of us who obey him, not just who believe him. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, he's warning Christians about the day of judgment, and he says God will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believing the gospel is not enough. What does it say in James chapter 2? Even the demons believe. We have to obey the gospel and call others to obey it as well. On the subject of obedience to the commands of God, which Noah was such a wonderful example of because he did everything exactly the way God told him. And, and, and we're all, we all owe our lives to that, to, to his obedience. I'm reminded of a, a, one of my favorite quotes from David Lipscomb. David Lipscomb was a heroic teacher in the early Restoration movements. Uh, he lived through the disaster of the American Civil War and saw the wreckage that that produced on the country and on the church. And at the end of the Civil War, he wrote a series of articles which were collected together in a work called On Civil Government, which is which published in the late 1860s. And I want to read from the preface about the attitude that he had about God and about obedience to God. And he, he speaks in the third person. This is just his writing style. This is from the beginning, his preface, introduction, introducing the work, giving the background. He says, the writer of the following pages was early in life impressed with the idea that God is the creator and preserver of the world, was its only rightful lawmaker and ruler. It occurred early in the writer's mind that the one sure and sovereign remedy for all these evils, and he talks about the evils that uh, were caused by man's sin and rebellion, was the absolute submission to God on the part of man and a restoration of his authority and rule in all domains of the world. In the study of the Bible, he saw the one purpose of God, as set forth in that book, was to bring man back under his own rule and government, so as to reestablish his authority and rule on earth, that God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. To this end, man's duty is to learn the will of God and to trustingly do that will, leaving results and events with God. It became a fixed principle with him that in religion man must in faith do what God has ordained he should do. What he has declared would be well-pleasing to him and then leave all in the hands of him who overrules the universe. So I want to move on from there to to take a look at uh, Noah is held up in the New Testament as one of the great examples of, of someone who lived by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about what does it mean to live by faith? Hebrews 11.7 holds up Noah, and it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, 
and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So Hebrews 11.7 says he became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. It also says by faith he prepared an ark. True faith, saving faith is defined in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11. And, and lived out by Noah is believing and obeying. By faith, Noah prepared the ark. And this is a massive construction job that presumably took a hundred years to build. And that was the example of Noah's faith by what he did. He believed God and he put God's commands into practice. That's what it means to be living by faith and that's what saving faith looks like. James tells us, I will show you my faith by my works, in James 2.18. So Noah believed what was not yet seen, which was the flood, and he believed what God told him. And then he obeyed God by building this massive ark to save, to save uh, his family. So it's a picture of saving faith. And I one of the first questions, I talked to, to, to people from uh, maybe Restoration Movement background, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Reformation Movement backgrounds, and they say, well, Chuck, you know, I believe we're saved by faith and not by works. And I say, well, I believe we're saved by faith too, but what do you mean when you say saved by faith? Can we take a look at Noah, who was saved by faith, what that looked like? It's belief made perfect through obedience. That's saving faith. That's what it looks like. Hebrews 11 says, says that, 11, 7 says that Noah was moved with godly fear. The same word that's used there for godly fear in Hebrews 11, 7 is used again by the writer of Hebrews in chapter, chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about how God, when he came down on Mount Sinai, shook the earth. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Noah, in godly fear, built the ark to save his household. And the writer of Hebrews uses the same word later on to say that's the attitude we need to have. Godly fear. And it's a word that means it involves awe, respect, reverence, veneration. And a godly fear that motivates us to obey. That was the heart that Noah had that led to his obedience, that attitude toward God. And that's, that's the very same attitude the Hebrew writers says that Christians need to have today. It's not a casual attitude about God, is that God just thinks I'm awesome, the one, most wonderful thing that he ever created, or God's my co-pilot, my good buddy, my boyfriend. 
is that the Hebrew writer says we need to have the same attitude that Noah had, godly fear. Let's pick up the story in in Genesis chapter 7, starting in verse 6. A lot of lot of things we can learn from, from Noah in this story. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters of waters came on the earth. Then Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. Also the clean and unclean birds, the clean and unclean cattle, and everything that creeps on the earth entered the with Noah into the ark, two by two, male and female, as God commanded him. Then it came to pass, after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the floodgates of heaven were opened. And it rained on the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his wife, his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives entered the ark. Also all the wild animals after their kind... All the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that moves on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind, entered the ark with Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord God shut him in the ark. Now the flood was on the earth forty days and forty nights. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. So the waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward and covered all the high mountains. And all flesh died that moves on the earth, bird and cattle, wild animals, every creeping thing that moves on the earth, and every man. Thus all things in whose nostrils was the breath of life, and everything on dry land died. So he blotted out all living things on the face of the earth, both man and cattle, creeping things and birds of heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah and those with him in the ark remained alive. Now the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now God, then God remembered Noah and whatever was with him on the ark, all the wild animals, all the cattle, all the birds, all the creeping things. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the floodgates of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heavens was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth and the end of 150 days the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month and the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. He also sent from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, brought her to himself to the ark. 
Then he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove returned to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out a dove. However, she did not return to him any more. And it came to pass in the 601st year of Noah's life, in the first month on the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. Now in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. So Noah and his family enter the ark. Seven days after they enter on one specific day, the, 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 the heavens open up and the, the deep opens up as well. The Lord shuts Noah in the ark, closing it in from the outside. It says that the fountains of the deep were broken up. So the, the picture that I get is that not only is rain coming down from above, but also water is coming up from beneath, from the, from the depths, from the abyss that the fountains have opened up. So water is coming up from below and water is coming down from the top and the water is rising and covering everything on the face of the earth. So 40 days and 40 nights it rained. Water starts to recede after five months. And the ark comes to rest on, it says, the mountains of Ararat. And if it's the same, Ararat Mountains. Ararat Mountains are, Mount Ararat is in eastern Turkey right near Armenia. Uh, that, that may have been the location near there. It just says the mountains of Ararat. And after 40 days wait, Noah opens the window, sends out a raven, then he sends out a dove uh, three times. That's right, he sends out the dove, it comes comes back, and then it comes back with an olive leaf, and then the third time... it doesn't come back at all. That's right, the third time it doesn't come back. And then uh, after that, uh, it says that uh, Noah built an ark and sacrificed to the Lord. Well, this is an interesting story, but what's the relevance to us? The story of the flood. Let's say, well, this is kind of interesting that this happened. This is a very unusual story. But uh, uh, why is this significant to Christians? Jesus talks about the story we just read in Luke chapter 17. I want to read what he said about the flood and its relevance to us in Luke 17, verses 26 and 27. Let's turn there. Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What's Jesus saying here? What's the point of what he's saying talking about the story of Noah? He said it's going to come unexpectedly. His return is going to be like the day when the ark was shut and the water started to come down. 
it's going to hit the world completely by surprise in the midst of everybody going about their normal everyday lives. Jesus talks about the story of the flood as something that is an unquestioned fact of history, not as a fable. He says, just as this happened in the day of Noah, it's going to happen on the last day. In Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking about two events, the the, the impending destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in A.D. 70, and also his return on the last day. Reading from Matthew chapter 24, uh, starting at verse 36, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. As the days of Noah were, so will be the uh, the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point that Jesus is making is that we need to be prepared for when he returns because it could happen at any time and it will hit people as suddenly as it did during the time of the flood. One of the hardest things for most Christians to accept is not just that there will be a day of judgment, but that only a few will be saved on the day of judgment. You look around and say, well, most people are pretty good. Certainly, I wouldn't wipe everybody out if it was my choice, if I was God. So I have a hard time. God must be just like I am, after all, because I'm a pretty good guy. So I wouldn't wipe out you know, virtually everybody. So I'm sure God wouldn't either. Well, God already did it once. 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about this event. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in in the next lesson. But he says in 1 Peter 3.20 that God waited to bring judgment in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved. So Peter's making a point that God is patient waiting for the right time. He wants as many people to be saved as possible. On the other hand, but he says during the story of the flood, only a few people were saved. In 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 4, Peter says, If God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, the Greek word is Tartarus, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood in the world of the ungodly, 
And then he talks about the example of Sodom and Gomorrah where, where Lot was spared. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So he talks, and Peter's talking about in the past, the angels who sinned in the past. And he guesses what that might be referring to based on what we talked about last class. The God brought judgment on them. And also in the days of Noah, he brought judgment on the earth, but he's delivered a few righteous ones. Therefore, he knows how to do this. And he also has the ability to deliver the godly out of temptation, just like he delivered Noah and his family. And Noah here is described as a preacher of righteousness. In 2 Peter 3, Peter speaks again about the story of Noah. So he talks about the story of Noah three times in his two short letters. Chapter 3, starting in verse 3, he says, Peter's, Peter's aware that people are scoffing about the return of Jesus. He says, no, no, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust, saying, where's this promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. For this they will fully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that existed then perished, being flooded by water. But the heavens and earth are now preserved for the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So Peter's saying that over time, people are come to doubt what Jesus said about his return. However, just like God's judgment caught people by surprise in the day of the flood, the same thing is going to happen again. And this time it's not going to be by water. God said he would never destroy the world again by water. He didn't say he'd never destroy the world again. Peter says this time the judgment is going to be by fire. And that God's delay is only because he wants as many as possible to be saved, that they should come to repentance. Therefore, he says, we need to be diligent and live holy and godly lives. Look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. He says, verses 11 to 13. The great flood of, of Noah is one of five events early in the scriptures that are preparing us for the final day of judgment. There's the flood of Noah is the first one. Sodom, where eight people make it out alive. Sodom and Gomorrah. How many people make it out of Sodom and Just Gomorrah? Lot and his That's right. Lot, his two daughters, and then his wife makes it partway out, and then she doesn't make it, and she looked behind. So only really three made it, four started, and three made it made it out in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Uh, Jude and, and uh, it's talked about in Jude and 2 Peter. Another one is the story of the Passover, where the angel of death brings destruction to every household except those that have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. So only the few, the Jews, are spared death visiting their families. The wilderness, the story of the wilderness journey in Exodus and Numbers, how many people there make it to the promised land? Out of all of the adults, 600,000. 
that left. Two make it, Joshua and Caleb, two adults. And then the story of Jericho. When Jericho is destroyed, representing the world, only one household makes it. The household that's protected by the scarlet cord, the household of Rahab, is spared. So we have five instances of God's judgment, and in all of them, only a righteous few are saved. Three, eight, two, one household. Do we really believe in our deepest recesses of our hearts that only a few people will be saved on the day of judgment and that most will be wiped out just as in all of these stories, starting with the flood, the great flood? Do we really believe that? In Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In Luke 13, Jesus is asked the question, the big question, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus is talking about the narrow road and the high standard. He's calling them too. Lord, are there only a few who are going to be saved? This is Luke 13, starting in verse 22. He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Many, I say to you, will seek to enter or not be able. When the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He will answer and say to you, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I did not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. They'll come from east and west, or north and south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Jesus says clearly here, in in response to the question, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? He says, you better strive to enter through the narrow gate because there will be a time when it's too late and many will not be able to enter. The master of the house will close the door. You know what that makes me think of? God closing the door to the ark in the story of Genesis. There's the time's going to come when the door is going to be closed and it's over and it's too late. So don't be surprised when it happens. So basically, conclusions from the lesson, four things. First of all, God gave Noah very, very specific instructions. Noah did everything exactly like the Lord told him. Great example. Great attitude. Tremendous tremendous heart to to be imitated today. Noah was saved by faith because he believed God and he did what he said. As it says in Hebrews chapter 11. 
saving faith involves obeying the commands of God. The third thing is the flood of Noah clearly is a foreshadowing of final judgment. It's going to hit suddenly. It's going to hit catastrophically. And most people will be completely unprepared for it. (coughs) And the fourth thing is, as in the days of Noah, only a righteous few will be saved in the end. So we need to strive to enter through the narrow gate ourselves and to warn and help as many other people as we possibly can. Amen.